Hello, you're listening to my first ever special edition of Faith to Live By. I'm Pam Christian, the host of this weekly podcast, but this edition is in addition to my weekly program. I'm producing this special program under intense deadline pressure because it is that important for the nation and for the world. You'll be hearing from Juan Seven, who will explain his extensive background that has caused him to get involved with what is known as the Brunson lawsuit. I've talked about this in recent shows, but today you'll hear directly from Juan the intricate background, why this case is so important, and why each of us can and must do our part to encourage the Supreme Court to hear this case. Part of why we believe God is in this unprecedented lawsuit is the prophetic vision Michelle from Michelle May Ministries had of two-thirds of the career politicians in Congress being gone, allowing for non-establishment men and women to take their place and restore our nation to the true republic-style government it's supposed to be. You'll find a link to her video in the show notes. We are not a democracy as nearly all of Congress likes to claim. A democracy is a majority rule state that is governed using tyranny of the majority. A republic is a state that is governed for and by the people through our elected representatives. My actual interview time with Juan was much longer than what you'll hear. I spent hours editing to reduce it. And please also know Juan was in his car during the interview, so there are spots where the audio is less than optimum. We only have until January 2nd, 2023 to take action, to be part of what is certain to become an historical case to hold our elected officials accountable through a very simple letter-writing campaign. Get comfortable because the important details make this explanation lengthy. And be sure to hear what I share after one's explanation so you can be part of this unprecedented opportunity to help restore our nation and ultimately help the restoration of the world. This lawsuit is truly that monumental. Please know there's one place where you'll hear choice language I don't use and I suspect many of you don't. And there's another place toward the end where I actually chose to bleep through. But Juan makes his point. Now, here's my interview with Juan. I am very grateful to have Juan O'Saven with me today and um, honored, to say the least, because of all the work that he's done over many, many years. And Juan, for the sake of those people in my audience who don't know about you, could you share a little bit about yourself, please? Sure. After the 2020 election and helping out with some of the legal issues for some of the candidates who uh, their campaigns had some were challenging how the vote came out, helped assemble a group of uh, candidates, a coalition of candidates for various offices that we thought were very important. For example, uh, Secretary of State. Um, that's where the Soros organization started its attack on America back in 2004 was the Secretary of State position in Nevada. So um, encouraged uh, Jim Marchant to run for Secretary of State there. Uh, he had an election that uh, was you know, thwarted into 2020, uh, like what we believe happened with President Trump. Then uh, next door, Rachel Hamm there in California, and then uh, Mark Finchman in Arizona, a number of other candidates across the country, including gubernatorial candidates. Kerry uh, Lake was a member of coalition, Joey Gilbert in Nevada. We saw a lot of pattern of issues there that we wanted to address. And so the coalition expanded out into a election integrity forum that we had uh, 20 election integrity forum hearings, public hearings around the country over the last year and uh, very well received. And by the way, you know, I am on the conservative side, Republican side, but uh, within the election integrity forums, 
we had uh, candidates from both sides. Uh, one of the ones that, uh, you know, is, is one of my favorite guys ran for Democrat uh, representative in Florida against Debbie Washington Schultz and had his election campaign, uh, his vote stolen. And the reason that I can say stolen without any reservation, he spent four years in the legal system challenging the vote there in, in uh of Florida, Debbie Wasserman Schultz. She was the head of the Democratic National Committee coming into the 2016 election and was caught during their convention cooking the books so that Bernie wouldn't get into the nomination and Hillary would. And so she had to leave as head of the Democratic National Committee because she got caught in a similar manner. We caught the Republican Party in California messing with the way that the candidates were getting the vote. Uh, using the machine count at the Republican convention. We saw that numerous state conventions across the country for the Republican Party, and this is a repeating thing. So then the candidates that get through are the approved insider secret handshake crowd, and you know then you're left with uh, the other party's candidate or yours, but your candidate might not be the uh, populist candidate that you wanted. You know, An example would be in the Debbie Washington Schultz event where uh, Hillary won the DNC, turns out that Bernie's crowd was pretty vociferous, had done a great job and got cheated. Well, I spoke even just recently, had dinner with one of the people, a Democrat's attorney there in Florida, and had Tim Canova there at dinner also. And the response was, well, yes, but you couldn't let Bernie win. He's a communist. Well, wait a second. So it's okay to cheat to get your person to win your party's nomination if you don't like the other person. Yet you had all of the people there at your group that were voting a certain way, but you're allowed to cheat because it wasn't your person. I mean, thinking about what you're saying here and uh, in the Republican Party, yeah, but you can't let mega candidates win because they're mega. Trump's history, he's out. We got to do what we got to do. So in California, what we caught him doing, they had anonymous voters at the GOP convention. They had weighted voters that had a, a bigger vote than other voters. They were preferred voters. They got people who could click extra times and anonymous, you know, remote voters from other locations, all these secret votes. And then they're not people here at the convention. Well, they couldn't be here today. Well, who are they? They're anonymous. That kind of mischief, we talk about, you know, the regular, the primaries or the general election where there's vote integrity issues, but at the uh, party level, both Democrat and Republican, and at the primary level, there's a lot of mischief going on that's very serious. So we did these election integrity forums to discuss those issues. And then we also looked at what are the solutions moving forward? How are we going to get this under control moving forward, looking towards 2024? Can this be allowed to continue? You know, you can have a vote for American Idol with 50 million people and the, and the votes counted and, you know, the time it takes to make a commercial break. And we can't do a vote in a county let alone a state, let alone the whole country that can be resolved uh, appropriately where we have confidence in the vote uh, even years later. Very serious situation. And by the way, this isn't just a bunch of party affiliated people, candidate people, you know, saying this. Director Radcliffe, who 
is the head of the Office of the Director of National Intelligence back in 2020. Uh, he had 45 days by executive order to provide a report to President Trump and to relevant agency heads and to Congress concerning any foreign interference in the election of 2020. He, uh, When the 45 days came up, several of the agencies, FBI, CIA, CISPA, which is a cyber intelligence division, they said that their agency directors couldn't provide a report because they were having trouble deciding how much weight to give the information about Chinese interference in the election. Director Radcliffe clearly, unequivocally stated that there was Chinese interference in the election numerous times, but they were you know, having a hard time deciding how much weight to give that. Well, wait a second. That wasn't what the executive order said. He was supposed to provide a report so that uh, other experts could look at it and weigh it out. It was an interim report. He provided no report. When Congress voted to certify the election of 2020 on January 6th, they did so without any information at all concerning Director Radcliffe's information of Chinese interference in the election. That's when Ted Cruz and the 100 congressional representatives and senators, 100, presented a challenge and said, we need to pause, look at this vote, and make sure that the Chinese interference didn't uh, screw with the outcome of the election. It wasn't an unfounded allegation. The largest intelligence gathering agency on planet Earth operation, the 17 intelligence agencies of Homeland Security, 16 direct agencies and the 17th, which is the supervisory agency overlooking the rest. The director of all of that said there was Chinese interference. That was the context personally for why I was paying such close attention to what the Brunson Brothers case ended up being, that we knew that there was a problem. You know, let me remind your audience, on January 6th of 2021, when Congress was certifying the election, it's maybe forgotten a little bit at this point in time, two million Americans showed up in Washington, D.C., that was the largest crowd by far of Americans ever to show up in Washington, D.C. It wasn't the peace protests in the 60s. It wasn't the racial contests in the 60s in the summertime when it was convenient and easy to travel to D.C. This is in the dead of winter, and yet people came from all around the country and hung out for a couple of days. Uh, wasn't just the 6th because people showed up early and, and really there was quite a few rallies on the 5th uh, especially. And the reason there were so many people showed up in Washington, D.C. on that date was because there was questions about the integrity of the election. People knew something was wrong. And the context further was, again, Director Radcliffe of the Office of the Director of National Intelligence the largest intelligence gathering agency on planet Earth, NSA, the big dog, CIA, FBI, pretty good sized dog, uh, CISPA, cyber intelligence uh, security. They all knew there was, was Chinese interference. The people down through the ranks, I mean, and, and look at the current context. We have all of this information coming out from Twitter with what Elon Musk is, is sifting out, showing that there was agency bias that was being 
projected into the operation of Twitter, where a federal agency of uh, these groups out of Homeland Security, their operatives on the payroll of these three-letter agencies were there then interacting and projecting into Twitter what they wanted said or not said within the social media. Now, that's what we're hearing about at Twitter. And it was pretty invasive, pretty strong. But Twitter's only one of numerous social media uh, locations where these federal operatives were working. This is a violation of the of Hatch Act. You cannot affect an election while you're on the payroll and using federal assets uh, or government assets, in this case federal, um, to affect an election. That's even the issue going to Arizona right this second today. We have all sorts of information out of Twitter where there was suppression of conversations, information into Arizona to affect the election in Arizona. And so that's federal agencies on the payroll, federal employees affecting a state election. That's illegal. That's a violation of the Hatch Act, let alone all the other mischief that was going on in Arizona. Uh, the Hatch Act doesn't allow any federal employees or government employees to be involved in electioneering, election activity to affect an election or to use government assets. You know, you can't use the copy machine to print flyers. Uh, you can't use your phone to make uh, calls looking for donations. And you certainly can't use three-letter agencies' ability to leverage executives inside of social media groups to affect the outcome of an election. All right. Now, with all of this being understood by the audience and my having heard you interviewed with another podcast recently, I'm really excited about what's taking place with the Brunson case and what you want are trying to help people be alerted to that they can actually get involved and be a help. Can you get into that, please? Sure, sure. So, you know, uh, the Brunson brothers, they saw that Congress voted without listening to any of the uh, information about uh, foreign interference in the election. Ted Cruz had made a very precise, specific complaint and asked Congress to take uh, a break, to take a breath, and allow 10 days, that was the suggested amount, to review the election and make sure that there wasn't foreign interference. There was a precedence for this back in 1876 election, 1877, and Congress gave five representatives and five senators and five Supreme Court justices the charge to look at the election to verify that, that it was a fair election and it was done properly. That's what Ted Cruz was asking for, that there be a pause before the electors' votes were accepted by Congress to certify the election. Let's make sure that there wasn't foreign interference. And he referenced specifically the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, uh, Director Radcliffe's information of Chinese interference in the election. So it wasn't just a minor charge. It wasn't somebody from their garage or basement saying, I think I saw something bad. This is the guy that runs the intelligence agency, supervises all of them. And he said there's a problem. And Congress chose to just go ahead and certify the election without the benefit of any report. Now, as a, a prelude to the Brunson thing, let me just add this. Congress should have gone in and brought forward the agency heads who would not cooperate in providing their information of foreign interference in the election. If the FBI wouldn't provide their uh, intelligence information and assessment to Director Radcliffe, 
then the head of the FBI should have brought in, been brought in and questioned by Congress immediately. Why are you in violation of an executive order to protect the vote against foreign interference and to give us the information about it, whether or not there was foreign interference and how much? Uh, same thing for NSA, same thing for the uh, National Reconnaissance Office. All of these agency heads that were not cooperating and were insubordinate, they refused to provide their information in compliance with the executive order. So they were insubordinate. They should have been fired on the spot, put somebody else in there, they'll provide the information. With that context, when Cruz presented his report to Congress and said, we need to pause, take a break, take 10 days, send the electors back to their states and review what in the world's going on here, as well as bring in these agency heads to find out what they know and they're not sharing. Congress, the majority said no, because they liked the outcome of being mostly Democrat there in the, in the House and uh, this balance being what it was in the Senate. They said, no, we're going to go ahead and proceed. And they voted to certify the election without doing any investigation. Now, that's where the Brunson case comes in. One of the brothers, Roland, he'd done some pro se work. He was wondering why, you know, he gets to march and nobody's suing. Roland Brunson, couldn't find an attorney and, you know, nobody wants to take these election cases. And he decided to do a pro se suit. He asked uh, his brothers and, and one of them joined him. And they did actually two identical suits, one in state court, one in federal court. And what their contention was, was where any congressman who voted to certify the election without doing an investigation, they were in violation of their oath to protect the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic. So the issue is this. In the case, Congress should have paused and allowed for an investigation, verify that the information coming in, uh, that there wasn't foreign interference. Every member of the government takes an oath. Every member of Congress takes an oath when they take office. And that oath is to protect the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic. What is the Constitution in that context of that oath? The Constitution is the contract between the American citizens and its government. So they take an oath to protect the rights of the citizen via this contract, the Constitution. Their oath is to protect it against all enemies, foreign and domestic. So if the mob's coming in and you're not getting protected, you're not, your civil rights are being ignored, you know, some cult comes in and they're, they're going to ramrod their way, not your way, concerning policing powers or something like that. And only people with blue hair get police protection and nobody else gets police protection or something. The aliens with web feet get police protection and nobody else does. Then what happens is that's a violation of our civil rights as citizens to be protected. Your vote is a civil right. We started the whole Revolutionary War over a Tea Party thing because we were getting taxed, but we didn't have any representation with the people who were taxing us. We were just slaves. That's considered a constitutionally protected right. We get to vote for the people who are going to be lording over us, running us. Our government is a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. So we elect people from within our community to represent all of our interests as a nation. That's the Constitution. They all agree to protect 
our constitutional rights, which includes our voting rights. So when Congress voted to certify the election without first doing an investigation, then they violated their oath because their oath was to protect the uh, voting rights, if you will, the constitutional rights against all enemies, foreign and domestic. When Cruz cited Director Radcliffe's information about foreign interference, and then Cruz asked all of the members of Congress to vote for a pause and to go back and investigate what happened in the election. Those Congress people who would not do one second's investigation, knowing that Director Radcliffe said there was foreign interference, knowing that no report had been provided as required by law, by the executive order from President Trump, that there was insubordination amongst those officials inside the intelligence agencies refusing to provide their information concerning foreign interference, which was there, then they went headlong forward without protecting the civil rights of all the American voters, all the American citizens, to protect them against their civil rights being violated by a foreign enemy. And Cruz specifically said China in what was there. There was information of Chinese interference. So the Brunson case is about Congress not even doing an investigation. It doesn't matter what the result of the investigation would be. If they'd done an an investigation, they could have done, say, a half a day of an investigation and brought in a couple of key people from the agency heads, asked them a couple of questions, decided that it didn't rise to a level to change the outcome of the election. They would have met their obligation at a technical level with their oath to protect the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic. But because they did zero investigation, they didn't lift their finger to protect the contract with the American citizens, the Constitution. They were in violation of their oath from that moment forward. Every act beyond that, they were in a treasonous, traitorous condition because they were committing treason against the American citizenry and against the Constitution by not protecting it with a simple investigation, let alone a more complex one that probably should have been done. So the lawsuit comes up through the Tenth Circuit. They did have on the Second Circuit and they got bogged down. The one in the Tenth Circuit got held up by the court at the Tenth Circuit and they weren't going to allow it to go forward. After, you know, over a year of working through this, Rolland figured out, oh, wait a second. If it's a matter of national security, if there's some type of an emergency related to this national security issue, then he could bypass the Tenth Circuit and go straight to the Supreme Court. He noticed the Supreme Court that he's coming. And then he started to work through changing the uh, pleading so that it would fit as a national security, national uh, emergency presentation. When he's just about to bring it to the court, and by the way, as the court realizes this is coming, the clerk of the Supreme Court contacts the plaintiffs and wants to make sure that they have everything they need. They're bringing it pro se. Do you have any questions about how to do it and how it has to be formatted, et cetera? And amazingly, Rolland had actually had another pro se, I think two pro se cases previously before the Supreme Court. So he kind of learned the ins and outs of how to do this uh, pretty good. So the court, though, had never reached out before. And this is a very unusual thing that happened. You can talk to all sorts of people in the legal arena that deal before the Supreme Court. Nobody ever remembers getting a call from the Supreme Court from the clerk's office. You know, it's happened, but it's not common. And so the clerk of the court 
contacting them, asking them if they have everything they need, they know how to do this, and actually gave them a point of contact with an associate assistant clerk in the office. If they had any questions, call and she'll be able to give you the right answers. So they're doing this on the way to bringing this emergency national security thing to the court when the 10th Circuit, where they'd been kind of holding this and they could just sit on it for you know practically forever and not give a decision. If you don't have a decision, you can't appeal it and go past the court to the Supreme Court. So by not giving a decision, they're just holding it there and it's, it's in quicksand. When they realized they could bypass the 10th Circuit, go to the Supreme Court, And when the Tenth Circuit realized the Supreme Court was in contact with them, probably had associates that said something, all of a sudden, the Tenth Circuit decides they're going to give a decision. They didn't want to be embarrassed. When they gave a decision, that made it an appealable issue. But now the brothers call the court back and say, okay, actually, because now we have a, a decision, is what we were putting together on this national security basis, everything else, still the right way to do this? And they said, no, go ahead and do it as an appeal. We'll receive it as a national security issue, but you don't have to do that in your presentation. And uh, so modify it this way and that. And oh, by the way, how long is it going to take you to do this? And they give them an answer. No, no, that's kind of a little long. Can you speed it up at all? We'll work as fast as we can. You know, it might take a couple of weeks. That's any way you can get it here faster. I mean, it'll maybe work, but as quick as you can get it to us. Very unusual. Why was the clerk of the court, and by the way, the clerk isn't operating autonomously. The clerk is only doing what he's being asked to do by justices behind the scenes. They're not just doing their own little thing. They're doing what the court, one or more of the judges are asking to be done. And so they hurry up. They actually get their appeal filed within a week. It gets to the court. They, they mail it on the 20th. And it's retroactively dated to the 20th, but they receive it on the 21st. It's actually filed, placed on this docket on the 24th, which is a Monday. And then the defendants, which there's 388 of them, 385 Congress people plus President Biden, Vice President Harris, and Mike Pence, former President Pence, Vice President Pence, because they all voted to certify the election without doing an investigation. They're noticed that they're they're part of the lawsuit. They have to reply. and the U.S. Attorney's Office is going to represent them and whatever. Most of the month goes by because they have a month to respond. And there's a notice put in that the Solicitor General is going to take the case and that the, the U.S. Attorney is not going to be part of the case because it's Supreme Court and there's all sorts of things. So all of those defendants are now represented by the Solicitor General. And the Solicitor General, after this 30-day period goes by, and the reason they're going to respond, they're going to respond, they're going to respond, no response puts in a notice, they're not going to contest or respond to this uh, lawsuit, to this civil case, and they're going to let the Supreme Court just do what they do. So that was the day before Thanksgiving. On the day after Thanksgiving, Supreme Court notes all this and uh, puts the case in for consideration on, on, on doing a date. The following week, they actually put it on the docket for a, uh, oh, a particular proceeding, I forget the name of it right now, that then would decide whether or not they're actually going to put it on the docket as a case that they're going to hear in a formal way. Um, it's in the Supreme Court's system, but it's not technically going to be heard by the nine justices until they have this conference. And that scheduled conference was placed at January 6th, 2023. 
two years to the day after this whole thing. Now, all of this conversation to get you to this point, the Supreme Court is in a kind of a bizarre situation. After Roe versus Wade was decided, 50 years of what was otherwise considered settled law, the mandate that abortions be available and legal in all 50 states. The Supreme Court, you know, for 50 years, people had brought cases groups about cases to have the court reconsider Roe versus Wade as not being in line with the Constitution. And during all those years, the court wouldn't pick up a case, wouldn't go rehear it, didn't want anything to do with it. This court all of a sudden decides that there's a case out there and they want to hear it. The court gets five to 8,000 cases that are brought to them, but they only actually hear 150, 200 in a big year, maybe 250 cases and decide to grab them out of the lower courts, listen to them, and then make a decision overriding or agreeing with lower courts to settle a matter. Uh, They considered uh, Roe versus Wade settled law up until this particular court. And you have to remember that Trump, President Trump, had picked several of the justices So this had a profile, a different demeanor, a different profile with those judges that were put in there by President Trump. This court, a conservative court, goes back, takes one of these cases that in any previous court would have just been ignored, never get time of day, looks at it, decides that, and it says, and this court says specifically, an earlier court erred in its judgment. So they reversed the earlier court said Roe versus Wade is not the law of the land. We are not mandating that all states have to have abortion. It's a state right to decide whether or not to offer abortions within that state. It is not a federal right to legislate that from the bench and mandate it from the bench. Uh, That is up to the state legislators. So we're going to back out of that. And they overturned Roe versus Wade. That totally pissed off uh, both the Democratic Party and then most of the members of Congress and certainly this administration, the Biden administration people. So they've been talking in the interim since Roe versus Wade came out. Uh, first off, they've been hesitant to provide additional security to the justices who have been threatened because of their decision on Roe versus Wade uh, physically and their families. Then they have talked about putting in term limits during this lame duck Congress. You know, you have uh, an elections over with the midterms. Uh, a lot of people are leaving the representative side and uh, they won't be coming back. So they can do mischief with the law and certain rulings that we all have to live with, but they're gone and they pulled it off during this uh, lame duck. And so the contention's been that they would run through legislation that would change the lifetime appointment of justices holding their offices on good behavior as long as they want to uh, remain and switch it to a term limit for justices. And then the next phase would be packing the court, a liberal president putting in liberal justices and or even adding to the number of seats on the bench instead of having nine justices have 11 or 13. And once you get in that condition under this you know, administration, the likelihood you'd be able to get back to another conservative court would be next to nil. So the contention was that they were going to come in and deal with this radicalized conservative court from the legislature and the administration. With that as the background, this uh, Supreme Court saw this case down at the Tenth Circuit 
heard that it was going to be brought in as a national security issue. And the consequence of deciding on this case favorably is that you would remove 385 members of Congress who certified the vote without verifying anything, without doing an investigation, plus the president and the vice president. That's a pretty big gun. That's a gun with a round in the chamber, the hammer cocked, and a full magazine aimed right at the head and the heart of the current political machine there in Washington, D.C. If they come after the court to change the balance of power between the Supreme Court, the administration, and Congress ganging up on the court, the court has a shot to take them out, and it's a Mexican standoff. So now this case is in the hands of Supreme Court justices. And by the way, even though they've said during the January 6th conference whether or not to actually look at the case, it takes four justices to decide to look at it. It doesn't take a majority. The thing is, though, because they received it as a national emergency, a national security issue, they could actually turn around and on a moment's notice, if this Congress and the administration during this lame duck session decide to get nasty, they can get nasty right back. They could have an emergency caucus and uh, you wouldn't even find out about it when it was happening and turn around and uh, issue a determination because it's national security and take out Congress and they could do it on a heartbeat. Uh, they could do it during the, the congressional session, which ends on the 16th for the House, I believe, and on the 21st for the Senate. Uh, they could do it after everybody's gone home for Christmas uh, before the end of the year and just tell people you're not coming back. You no longer qualify to hold public office. You didn't honor your oath to protect the Constitution against enemies foreign and domestic. And again, it's not deciding whether there was vote interference. They didn't lift their finger to investigate if there was foreign interference when there was serious charges by serious players with the right access and the right credentials. There were serious charges. There was foreign interference. When they did zero investigation, they did not protect the Constitution. They didn't honor their oaths and therefore they are not qualified to hold office now or any time in the future for the rest of their lives, and they cannot practice law. That's what the lawsuit is. Uh, and in fact, the lawsuit, then uh, one of the ways that this can be addressed if the court finds in their favor, because you have to put, you know, what's your reconciliation? What's your solution at the end of this whole thing? Uh, you have to give them, here's the solutions that we want with this lawsuit. One of them is also that all of those who voted to certify the 2020 election on January 6th, all of them be removed from office. They no longer qualify for office. And then each one individually be referred for prosecution, both in the justice system and military. Because if you allowed a foreign power to cook the vote and you did it knowingly, then that is an act of war on the other country's side. And we deal with that within a military a tribunal and prison or justice system, uh, not within the civilian side. So referrals to the Justice Department and to the military for this treasonous act of going forward with the vote without protecting the Constitution and doing an investigation. So that's a long-winded thing, but I'm trying to hit all the issues that people have questions on so that you kind of understand where we're at right now. The Supreme Court could act on a dime any second in here with no warning if they feel the need. My guess is at this point in time, they'll let it go to the sixth. They'll probably decide to go hear it and drag it out through the spring. But the other side of the coin is they could say, no, we don't want to hear it right now and let it go. And then it's an appealable issue 
the Brunson brothers are not done, if the court decided we don't want to hear it at this time, the Brunson brothers could put together an appeal. It'll cost a bit of money. They'll have to probably hire the attorneys, even though they got to this point pro se, to build it out and appeal it and come back. Additionally, between now and the 6th, other interested parties could file amicus briefs. And so we're aware of several that are discussing this right now, friend of the court briefs, because the filing that the Brunson brothers did, the court limits your complaint or your pleading to 135 pages. So there's a lot of stuff they would have loved to have included, but they only have so many pages to put the information in that they want to put in. Other interested parties can build out some of the other arguments. Okay, let me jump in here. Yes, they could file an amicus brief, uh, whoever has the ability to do that. But more to the point is something that each and every one of us can do with this letter writing campaign. Would you please give a brief explanation of that? Because I want every single one of my listeners to do this. Well, the court is in this you know, pretty wild position. If they do something on this, it's a pretty amazing and would seem extreme situation. You know, they need a little wind under the wings. If you're concerned that uh, these people didn't protect the Constitution, didn't obey their oaths, uh, their pledges to uh, protect us, letter to the court asking them to look at this case and then to decide favorably is totally appropriate. And so the Brunson brothers had put together a letter. We've amended it just slightly. It was just a one-page letter, and we have it uh, in a number of places online here to, to get and, and videos that show how to do it. It's literally just a letter to the court. You can run it off in your copy machine. You can handwrite it if you want and put a hand note at the bottom. And, and I'm very concerned about this because of whatever sentence or tell me, give some suggestions. Send that to the Supreme Court so they know that we're watching and we're very concerned about this and they're not operating in a vacuum. Then, because we won't hear from the court exactly how many letters they got, probably not any time soon, we wouldn't know if it was 100 letters, 1,000 letters, a million letters. We also want to send a duplicate letter to the Brunson brothers, and uh, we'll use that to gauge how many letters are actually going to the court. And in that letter, I'm just asking, they didn't ask it, but I'm asking, just put a buck. They put a huge amount of time and effort into this. They've got all sorts of personal expenses into this. And... If the court decides not to hear it right now, we're going to have to hire probably a big-time law firm. It's going to cost serious money to go back and do the appeal to correct whatever we didn't get right. Remember, this was brought pro se to get it right for the court to reconsider. We're not done. If the court does accept it, they may very well have a hearing. They don't have to have an open public hearing, but they may have an open public hearing. And the brothers are good, but trial attorneys that present before the Supreme Court, that's a whole different breed. And those people aren't cheap, the preparation like that. So we need some money in the pocket to do that. So I'm just asking, put a buck in the envelope and participate in a tangible way with the brothers. Show your support uh, so that they also have the war chest to proceed forward, whichever way this goes. So two letters, two stamps, two pieces of paper, and a dollar. Look, it takes a hundred times more time just to go to your vote. And then your vote wasn't even being counted in some of these recent elections. You couldn't vote in Arizona because the machines weren't working. People stood out there for four and five hours and finally had to go to work, take care of their baby because the babysitter wasn't going to be able to stay much longer. Here, you get to do a vote that the court needs to pay closer attention, be part of this, help us out. And uh, it's just two letters, take you a few minutes to do. And then if you do yours, the other thing I would really ask is make sure that your friends and neighbors are doing likewise, and uh, uh, the court should address this issue. If these people won't protect your constitutional rights, what kind of a country do you live in? 
they make an oath and they won't protect your constitutional rights. That's your contract. That's your voting rights and everything else. It's a simple act. Let them know we're here. Let them know we're paying attention. And by the way, you can't go protest. You had 2 million people show up in Washington, D.C. And now you got a whole bunch of them being accused of all sorts of crimes because they're there to make their you know, presence known, right? So now name the place in the country that people feel comfortable to go have their voice heard. This, at least you can have your voice heard where somebody wants to hear it. Remember, the Supreme Court helped this case come up to them. They want to revisit this issue. Give them a little wind under the wings that they can move with confidence. They're not going against the will of the people. Looking at this case is within the will of the people, and they need to be heard. And that's why we send them a letter to nudge them along. Yes, look at it. Look at it favorably. Let's save America and save the world. Absolutely. And Juan, when I learned about this, I knew I had to have you on my program. I can't thank you enough for taking the time and the perseverance for us to be able to connect to record this. And I'm going to be getting it out to my audience as a special podcast. I'm going to hammer it hard with my social media and get as many people aware of this as possible. Juan, how many letters should we aim for? Well, I think it's a million. You know, if we had a million, I I would like to see 20 million. Let me just say this. Every person that was there in Washington, D.C. on January 6th, 2 million people, every one of them should be sending two letters. Uh, they went to all that effort. I'm looking, you know, they, they flew on airplanes. They drove in cars. They paid for hotels. They slept in their van uh, to be there, be part of it. Two letters. And then, by the way, everybody that was there in D.C., they were on their cell phones texting, sending pictures, talking with 10 of their friends. The country was vicariously there with all those people in D.C. Um, there's lots of people that couldn't leave because they got kids, they got mortgage, they got work that, that you know, their, their medical staff can't be done without, policing uh, departments that can't be done without. They must be at their jobs. So it's an amazing thing. You had 2 million people there, but all the other ones that were there in spirit with them, we should be able to get, you know, 20 million people send two letters or more. Uh, all the people that voted and don't think that they got the right outcome from the election. I should get you know, 100 million letters there, honestly, uh, from both sides. <laughs> this is an opportunity for every single one of my listeners and your friends and family members exponentially to take charge and make sure our elected officials know that we're watching, the Supreme Court members know that we're watching, and we can have a personal active participation in taking our country back. Juan, I want to thank you so very much for being on this podcast. I look forward to letting you know some of the outcomes that I learn of from my listeners. Now, I'm going to strong arm you just a little bit. The Bible is clear. God holds us accountable for what we know. Now that you've listened to this, you know the truth, and I'm imploring you to act on it. Understand, the Supreme Court is very interested in considering this case, As Juan explained, with all the threats they and their families have suffered after their ruling on the Roe v. Wade case, the left's open call for term limits for the justices and potentially packing the court, the justices need to know where the people of this nation stand. I want you to use the link in the show notes to simply print out the letter template, follow the instructions, and send one letter to the Supreme Court and one copy of that letter to the Brunson brothers so they can have an idea of how many letters are sent to the Supreme Court. We need to make a major impact, so I want you to tell your friends and family about this campaign and get the link to them so they can send letters too. 
We want to overwhelm the Supreme Court with letters so they realize they have our backing in the midst of our elected officials failing to protect them. And know there's a Spanish version of the letter template available on the information page as well. Our government leaders have violated our civil rights, have contributed to the disgrace of our election process, and are not serving we the people but their own greedy agendas. We must encourage the courts to consider hearing the case and to judge fairly and in accordance with the Constitution and the laws of our nation. We have a chance to hold accountable Biden, Harris, Pence, and 385 members of Congress who violated their oath and in turn committed treason and failed to uphold the contract they have to represent we the people. Use the link in the show notes to learn more about how this lawsuit can bring justice. Simply print, sign, and send one letter to the Supreme Court and send a copy of the same letter to the Brunson brothers. And if you can, put a dollar in for the Brunsons. And if you can do more, write a check as the Lord leads. It's the least we can do since they've spent their own time and money getting the case this far. And if there's a need for hiring attorneys to see this case through, we must support them because a favorable ruling in this case means our Constitution will be upheld and self-serving politicians will be held accountable and we will be free from government tyranny. Our government is a republic that is to be governed for and by the people. If you don't act now and do what you can do to help bring correction to a corrupt government, you will be complicit with the wrongdoing. I pray each and every one of you understands the serious importance of this matter. Share this podcast with everyone you know to be part of this grassroots effort. Be part of this urgent and peaceful grassroots effort to restore our nation and bring hope to the world. 